The best relationships are built on learnable skills. The question becomes, are you willing to learn? Join John and Sungshin Lopnow as they converse with leaders at the intersection of brain science and spiritual formation with practical ways of staying connected to the presence of God and to one another. We hope that the Presence and Practice podcast serves you and other leaders around the world with tangible ways to increase love in every interaction. And now, to tell you more about today's episode, here's John and Sungshin. Well, welcome, uh, Presence and Practice uh, podcast listeners. I'm, I'm here with Dr. Lou Cozzolino. Is that how you pronounce it? Not bad, yeah. Not bad. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go with it. Uh, I just want to introduce all of you to who he is. He practiced psychotherapy and consulting psychology in Beverly Hills. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from UCLA and an MTS from Harvard University. What's MTS? A Master's of Theological Studies. Studies. Okay. And you are, you've been a professor at Pepperdine since 1986, lectures around the world on psychotherapy, neuroscience, trauma, and attachment. It's awesome. That's why I have you here. So thanks so much for taking the time. Some of the books that he has written are Why Therapy Works, The Making of a Therapist, and The Development of a Therapist, along with Social Neuroscience of Education and Attachment-Based Teachings. I reached out to Lou, and he's, I wanted to talk about uh, trauma, shame, spirituality, so, but the first question I have for you is, as you see it, what's the biggest issue or one of the biggest issues you see individuals uh, that they're facing nowadays? Um, I think the, probably the, the most basic issue has to do with the disparity between how stressful the world is and society and finances and all the other things that our complex civilization has developed um, in contrast to how our brains and minds are still paleolithic essentially. Hmm. And so in a sense, our, our, our societies have created a world in which our brain is not well adapted to anymore. Hmm. And so, uh, Whereas when I started practicing with stress, uh, dealing with stress was something that, you know, you would find with some clients. Now you pretty much find it with all clients. And so any work you're doing in therapy, it, you know, really necessitates almost a front loading of kind of assessing someone's schedule, pressures, lifestyle, and those sorts of things to see whether or not they're actually creating their own many of their own problems by not paying attention to like having executive control over their lives mm-hmm. so i think for me that's something that um at least i know over the 40 years or so that i've been practicing um a clear a clear difference and al- along with the internet and you know like most everyone now is addicted to the internet and it's having effects on our ability to attend and focus and mm. regulate and everything else. So I think um, on top of all the things we've always dealt with, those are two, uh, those are two areas I think that uh, now we have to address with just about everyone. Wow. So you think most of us are addicted to the Internet? I would say the majority of people, certainly the majority of people I meet, especially the uh, – the kids and adolescents and young adults I work with, some you know older um, folks my age. I'm almost seventy. Folks my age uh, 
there's there's less addiction. Um, and maybe I think for my generation, the you know the analog generation, we use it more as a tool. Whereas I see for younger folks, it's really shaped the way their brains interact with the world. Mm. Um, there are some good uh, spinoffs from that, and there are some bad spinoffs. Sure. Any words of wisdom for those who are in their 20s or younger, teens and 20s? Words of wisdom, I, I don't know. I guess the thing, the thing would be to, um, there's a fellow named Tristan, uh, Tristan Harris, who was an ethicist at Google who quit and started his own company. He has a number of really wonderful TED Talks and podcasts and the like. So I would say, you know, listen to, um, you know, listen, learn from Tristan Harris and try to make your your relationship with social media and computers more mindful. In other words, Mm -hmm. realize that the way the way uh, the Internet works is that it it has no regard for your for your mental health. Its only regard is to keep you online as much as possible so your attention can be monetized. So to whatever degree you can become aware of that and gain executive control over those choices, you'll probably be better off in your life. I like, I like your approach because it's not so much do this, don't do that, but grow in education and mindfulness about what's actually occurring, about the reality of the situation. Because I tell my kids, these companies spend millions of dollars to learn how to control your brain. So why don't you learn how to take some of that control back? And you just said it a little more eloquently. Be mindful about it. Learn from this, this gentleman, Tw- Tristan. I think that's, that's a good word. So thank yeah. you. I'll, I'll look into that. Well, the, um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because I like your thinking about shame. And I know in your books, you talk about core shame. But I think you're one of the few people who talk about, I think you call it appropriate shame. Um, I have a mentor who calls it healthy shame. Can you compare and contrast the difference between what core shame is and where it's appropriate? Well, I mean, shame is a, you know, shame evolved as a, as a strategy for co- uh, social cohesion, hmm. right? And, and social re- obligation and responsibility. You know, in fact, I think in Chinese, there were like 105 or 110 words for shame. And when I talk to, I have lots of Asian students. And when we talk about this, they always, they're always surprised by my perspective because for them, they don't see they don't see shame or their their experience of it is not as something that is that is depleting. It's more shame is a kind of guidepost to mm. social behavior, which probably rests in Confucian culture, you know, as a, you know, like uh, where there where I don't know if you can call Confucianism or religion. Some people do, but it really is more a set of social mm-hmm. social strategies for interaction like a lot of the things in the Old Testament, for example. Um, so I think there, there's, there's that, there's appropriate shame, which is feeling badly or having a sense of, of uh, like a, a negative, visceral and emotional sense when you do something that you know is not fair, like if you're treating someone unfairly, right? So that really is a conscious, um, socially oriented shame. But there's this other kind, it's it's an interesting sort of historical thing. I think um, uh, going back, just a lot of my worst, a lot of my understanding of how we operate is based on evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. If you look at, if you look at, um, 
you think about the transition from animals as individual creatures to animals that evolved into social creatures, right? And, and, and had social interactions. We didn't really have much networking for social processing early on when we evolved into social animals, but we did have all of this fear circuitry related to predator and prey mm. and other being able to freeze or fight or, you know, or, or flee when we were, we were threatened. And my suspicion is that what evolution did, and it so often does, it takes some existing brain systems mm. and it bootstraps it for some new purpose. Hmm. What happened was in order for groups to organize around an alpha, which had a, a positive adaptational value, and we have we evolved to have alphas and betas and all of that in groups, that evolution bootstrapped this fear circuitry to pay attention to the alpha and to follow them and look at them and feel very um, overwhelmed and negative when we're not going along with the mm-hmm. alpha as part of a social and group coordination, right? And then later, as we evolve these large cortices and a sense of self and an internal, you know, world where we can think and we can meditate and pray and reflect on ourselves, for some reason, and because I don't think this is very adaptive at all, mm-hmm. but for some reason, those negative thoughts vis-a-vis the alpha sort of evolved into this sort of self-doubt, um, self-humiliation, uh, but the same physiological reactions occur. Parasympathetic dominance, withdrawal from other people, um, looking towards, you know, not just a charismatic leader, but also looking towards um, cultural icons like the Kardashians or whoever the heck it is mm-hmm. that is popular on whatever medium is, is uh, involved at the time. And we compare ourselves against them and we always find our, find ourselves wanting. Mm-hmm. You know, same way like in AA, they talk about we, we spend our lives comparing our insides to other people's outsides. Mm-hmm. So we, we look at their acts, but we don't see their struggles, but we see all of our struggles, mm-hmm. right? And so with core, leading up to what, what's happened now is core shame. Core shame is a feeling of inadequacy, fraudulence, lack of being lovable, um, and that is a, that's there's nothing there's nothing you've done that is wrong and there's nothing you can do to make up for it because it isn't about your behavior or about your life mm. it's about these it's almost like a vestigial process like our tailbone and our appendix mm. vestigial organ of our evolutionary history that mm. leads to feel badly about ourselves right yeah and i think a lot of the the, um, the, the stories and the beliefs and the ideas uh, that relate to, especially Christianity, have to do with this notion of having an all-loving God who is non-judgmental and accepts you regardless of what you do as long as you repent. And I think that sort of theological perspective is an attempt to sort of counterbalance this evolutionary, uh, mm-hmm. I would the real sort of, it's, it's sort of a negative consequence Mm-hmm. Of, evolution both solves problems but creates other problems right yeah. so i would say that that is is an attempt to sort of compensate you know along with drugs and alcohol and narcissism and all the other things we have in our our, our lives to uh, try to make up for the fact that we feel less than others 
yeah, that, so that doesn't have a, um, that doesn't move us forward. That, that kind of core shame. It's just something we have to deal with as being part of being human. Right. And, you know, we have to figure out how do we, how are we able to move forward and to, to be have vitality and live up to our potential and not get depressed, mm-hmm. right? How do we live our lives uh, despite the fact that there are there are uh, areas of our brains and minds that are dedicated us to making us that are dedicated to making us feel terrible, right? Yeah, yeah that's interesting. And then the health, the appropriate shame is how would you distinct distinguish between like appropriate shame and guilt? Like what, you know, cause I think, you know, in popular culture, they make a difference between those two, but I want to hear from your kind of perspective. No, I would say they're the same thing. I think it's a mislabeling. Okay. It's just a mislabeling. Yeah. I think that core shame has to be separated from guilt and shame, which are used interchangeably for mm-hmm. the most. Um, yeah. That's like, I think it's like that. It's kind of like the same thing that's happened in culture in our culture, I'm oh, sorry about that. Um, Come on. <laughs> All right, there we go. Um, it's the same thing that's happened in our culture with the conflation of anger and rage, right? Anger, anger evolved along with attachment. So that, cause not only do we nurture uh, the ones we love, our children, our families, we also have to protect them from danger, right? So anger is an incredibly important and it's our only left hemisphere emotion that is considered negative by our culture. But rage is sort of the, a, ref, a reflection of feeling helpless and, and um, powerless. And uh, it's sort of like being a trapped animal. Mm-hmm. Anyone. So I think what the, the problem is that the, we've conflated again, rage and anger. So there's anger management where there really should be, there should be rage management and anger should be figured like how do we express our anger in a contactful way? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. in other words, if you if you do something that hurts me, John, and I want to maintain our relationship, how can I express my anger in, in a way that doesn't kill you, but simply informs you mm. that at me and that I'm trying to have appropriate boundaries where I can care for you and care for myself at the same time? Is rage just a hyper extension of anger is it is it in the same uh, part of the brain function or and just like a you know it's different yeah rage is rage is um is right hemisphere driven it's a very primitive affect that is really a response to feeling overwhelmed and cornered so what rage is is you in other words that's when people you know instead of just instead of just um sort of pushing back they, they, they pummel or attack someone, right? Mm-hmm. Domestic violence, child abuse, whatever Putin, Putin is doing now in the Ukraine, whatever Donald Trump does when someone doesn't agree with everything he says, that's all rage from feeling, um, from, from using narcissistic defense and feeling completely helpless. Mm. That's, that's helpful. And you know, a lot of my listeners are, um, you know, Christian, either small group leaders or pastors, a lot of our parents. So I'm kind of talking about people who have some power, a little power or a lot of power. You know, parents have a lot. Uh, small group leaders have some sizable and then pastors even have more. What kind of knowledge or wisdom would you give them to be cognizant of this role of shame? Because they hold a position. Maybe they are the alpha in a sense. 
So what, what if they were listening and they were curious, oh, how can I use this knowledge? How, what would you speak to them? Parents, pastors, small group leaders. I would, I would say that the most important piece of it is to discover the shame you're denying. In themselves. Right? In themselves, yeah. And to understand that shame. And there's a, I think, I, I guess at the, at, you know, sort of at the end of the long road, there might be some kind of self-forgiveness involved. Mm-hmm. I don't think, this, I don't think self-forgiveness works as well, at least for me and for the people I work with, mm-hmm. as understanding what we're dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. Forgiveness applies that there's, you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And when it, or shame, you haven't done anything wrong, your mind has just created a narrative that you've had, then you have to sort of spend your life fighting it. Well, do not, don't part, don't parents sometimes participate in the creating of that narrative with little children? Well, sure, because that's probably the narrative that was used to parent them. Right. But they just carry it forward, you know, as much as parents want to at least consciously not perpetuate what was done to them to on their children. Um, there's this whole other channel of unconscious, you know, sort of repetition that occurs mm-hmm. that I don't understand what's going on. Um, I can't tell you how many pastors, kids I've had in my practice over the years who struggle with all sorts of self-loathing addiction, sec, you know, hypersexuality, all sorts of things that are in a sense, um, uh, kind of attempts to try to figure, you know, try to get through the suppression of all their natural mm. urges and developmental processes that were held down by, you know, edicts from God, as opposed to a relationship with a caring human. Mm. So the way, so you're, there's, there might be self-forgiveness, but you're saying, let's just acknowledge what reality is, which is this, we're probably all born with the experience of feeling less than. That, that's pretty prominent. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, when you say forgiveness, it implies sin. Mm-hmm. And I'm, what I'm saying is that, and I got to say that the people in my practice, at least, that suffer the most from core shame are the, exactly those people that always do the right thing. Mm-hmm. They get to, they bake the cookies, they set up the chairs, they do all of that stuff in an attempt to try to transcend their shame but it doesn't really touch the shame because like i said before there's nothing you've done is wrong and there's nothing you can do to make up for it because this isn't something that you did you created in your life it's something you were born with and some people are more vulnerable than others to it and what would be a like a seed of hope for them um a seed of hope i think you know i would say give up you, you've got to give up trying to make up for what you've done wrong because that is just an endless loop. Hmm. And you have to realize that what you're trying to make up for, you know, never happened. Or if it happened, it happened, uh, you know, a billion years ago mm-hmm. it's not that you can do anything about. And, and it's related also to the seed of hope from what I can see is that going back to my story before, is that the core shame is related to being a beta in a group. Mm. And so people with core shame either deny their power and their assertiveness and their boundaries, right? Mm. Um, Or they do this sort of reaction against it where they become narcissistic and dominant. So you see this in 
you know, you see this in the in the real in the church sex scandals, mm-hmm. you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of kids being sexually abused, all sorts of um, I used to live across the uh, an alley uh, from uh, a bishop in, in uh, I can't remember what church he was a member of, but he beat the hell out of his wife every night. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that if you if you have this core shame and you use religion to try to suppress it, it's only marginally successful or maybe it only works on Sunday mornings. Right. But I think going back to what I said before, you really have to do the internal work mm-hmm. and what this shame, what this core shame is about. And you have to reorganize your thinking and your emotions and behaviors in order to not be the beta anymore who has to use rage against other people, but to become an alpha. And by alpha, I don't mean the, you know, the silverback gorilla. Hmm. It, there's a better term in Yiddish for it. It's called a mensch, right? Mm-hmm. And what a mensch is, is a person who does the right thing, regardless of whether or not it's benefiting them or whether it may look good or whether they get their name on the plaque, hmm. right? They're constantly, and to me, that's the core of my faith, mm-hmm. is doing the right thing without seeking any recognition. And not because I'm trying to make up for some inner deficit, but because it's the right thing to do. And I feel it. My heart moves in that direction. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways to deal with core shame, is yes. to become the kind of person who can do the right thing, abandoning the outcomes. Right. It's a very Buddhist perspective, right? You mm. behave based on compassion and not on recognition or reward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, Dallas Willard. He's a, a philosophy, he passed away, philosophy professor. He talked about basically, yeah, trust God, do the right thing and abandon all outcomes and act in love. And yeah. so that's, that's kind of, that is the way through this yeah. to go that, beyond it. That's the core Buddhist perspective as well. Hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of, uh, wisdom in there. Well, the, um, yeah, thanks for this, this conversation about shame. Okay. So parents, I'm wondering what parents can do. They, you know, I think all parents, they want to be good. They want to do good. I mean, let's just outside of some small percentage, they want to do good, but they still contribute. If they notice, oh man, I screwed up. I screwed my kids up you know, because I shame them when I shouldn't. What, what can uh, rearrange or help them to kind of take, do the right thing? What's the next right thing once they real, have this realization? Well, I, I think the, of course, it's best to have the realization before you have the kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. I mean, I agree with you, but yes, good luck with that. <laughs> but very few of us are able to do that. And as much work as we do before we have kids, I found that your kids bring up all sorts of things, remind, make us go through our childhood once again. And I, I don't think there's any way around it. In other words, no matter how much work you do before, you're still going to run into these things as you're raising your children. Um, there are a lot of things that I've seen over the years uh, parents do, I think, that are particularly harmful. And one of the things is, you know, I think when, when when we think about having chil- children and then we, even before they're born, we develop a kind of picture of what our children are going to be. Mm. Right? 
And then our children constantly feel like they're disappointing us because they're not the image that we had hoped for. Hmm. So I think that the, a, a core thing, and I, I certainly struggled with this and still struggle with it, um, you know, going forward is that it's, you have to put those images and fantasies behind. You have to put your own childhood behind because your children aren't you and the world is a different place. Hmm. I think the core thing is sort of curiosity hmm. and love and acceptance, hmm. right? And really get to know who your kids are. And that doesn't mean you can't put forward, you know, it's not that you don't have values that you're trying to inculcate or you've got things that you would prefer them to do versus not do. But as most parents learn, you only have a limited, there's, there's a limit unless you, unless you take an authoritarian role and crush your children's spirits, right? If you let your children be free, they really are on their own course, and so I think a lot of parents feel pressured and, and feel like they're, all of their children's behavior is a reflection on them. And the truth is that your child is a separate person. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things they do, their, their, their sexuality, their sexual orientation, their religious beliefs, their political beliefs, all of those things are going to emerge. And I think being curious about your child is something that parents don't do as much as as they try to shape their child in their own image. Mm-hmm. So, so parents want to play God, and it's not appropriate. Um, it's really not appropriate, I don't think. Um, you know, again, I think one of the things we suffer from nowadays is there's a little too much acceptance and a little too much freedom. So kids feel lost, and mm. they're... they're bring with more anxiety, depression, and suicidality than ever, mm. right? And so I'm not saying let's, it's, like, it's like a free-for-all. What I am saying, though, is that I think the, the antidote to really bad outcomes with kids is being with them, right? You know, and I think kids spell love, T-I-M-E, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And being with them and, and walking the, the paths that are both difficult and easy with them, mm-hmm. it doesn't you don't fight with them. It doesn't mean you don't have arguments, but that shouldn't be the center of your relationship. Hmm. Right. It's funny. My, my son gave me a father's day card. He's 15. He gave me a father's day card yesterday. and says, dad, you've been a really good father this year. And I'm looking forward to the ways you will improve in the coming year. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Way to go. <laughs> he has hope for you. <laughs> He does. He thinks my parenting skills can improve over this next year before the next Father's Day card is, uh, is, is, uh, is released. And so we'll see what happens. I love the brilliancy of, of that. Yeah, my son is 15, too, and, and, and he wrote me like a, a wonderful card as well. But that, that's awesome. Actually, the end of this book, you know, the Why Therapy wor- Works, you quote a lyric from you, too, which is kind of re- I'm referencing it because it's to your point. And when I go there, I go there with you. It's all I can do. So you're, that kind of gets in the, the curiosity, the time with, the presence. Yeah. That's, go yeah. with them. Be with them. Right, right. And I mean, I grew up in an, for example, I grew up in an environment where, it, you know, if you were effeminate or gay, you were, you were uh, bullied and mercilessly and you were beaten at every opportunity. Mm. And, you know, and so my son... Is, you know, struggles with that issue and his concern and trying to figure out his sexuality. And it makes me feel at some level um, uncomfortable, mm. you know, 
because of my of my upbringing and uh, you know and all of my adaptations and like but my feelings aren't really that relevant you know to the, I have to deal with those I have to cope with those mm-hmm. and then figure out how to be there for him in what he's going through and learn to be open and learn to listen and you know be aware of the fact that uh, you know through my childhood there were lots of things that I was told I shouldn't do because they were a feminine or, you know, mm. or they, you know, you're not, you're being, you're acting very gay and all the, you know, other uh, prejudices and things that I heard. And I've got to, that's all coming up and that I've got to process that and I've got to deal with that simultaneously. And, you know, certainly I make mistakes and I'm inconsistent and um, not always vigilant enough, but the great thing and something my father never did to me was, you know, uh, is I can apologize. Mm-hmm. My father was taught that you never apologize to your children. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that was, you know, and he wasn't unusual yeah. that his father never apologized to him either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're changing the course of your, your family and where they're going. That's yeah, I, I want to make different mistakes. That's right. That's good. I want to make different mistakes. Maybe I'll type. That's what the title of the podcast will be. I like that. Let's update those mistakes. Yes. Uh, Let's make better mistakes. Wait. Well, you know, um, trauma is something you hear a lot today. It's popular, um, you know, and that I think there's a goodness to it. But I think one, one thing that you can share is like, what's your understanding of what is trauma and and then how can people identify that so that healing can more likely occur? Well, I think probably, I, I think, like you said, the word is used um, about just about everything now. Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is it sort of, um, it blurs the distinction yeah. between bad experiences and those types of things that change the way the mind and the brain develop. Hmm. Okay. Um, because I remember my grandfather would say, you know, like you've always got to, you've always got to get back up on the horse that threw you, you know, how he knew that. I don't know, given he grew up in Brooklyn, yeah. but, um, that was a saying that he always used. And so there was the sense of, um, the importance of, of getting, you know, of being knocked down and getting up and having courage, um, and not taking on a victim stance. Again, it goes back to that alpha beta thing. Hmm. One and alpha is that they get knocked down and they get up again. And a beta is someone who gets knocked down and assumes a victim role and stays there and is looking for someone else to serve or follow. Hmm. Right. So that's yeah. another, other kind of, I think everyday example of the, of that uh, social status difference. Um, but I think, you know, what happens when someone is truly traumatized and they have difficulty getting over it, uh, you know, if if they get stuck in the trauma, hmm. it usually it, it changes the way the different system. And this is a very long, this is a very long and detailed. Uh, you know, there's a there's a long and detailed biological explanation. Hmm. But there are you know our our brain is in a monolithic structure. It's a government of systems, mm-hmm. and, and when we're traumatized to a to a uh, a significant degree. A number of things happen in, in our brains that lead to the perpetuation of the results of the trauma. Mm-hmm. So one thing that, uh, you know, there's one area, one level of things, which are biochemical changes, mm. which result in more um, higher levels of adrenaline and cortisol. 
that actually damage our brain. You know, um, high, uh, cortisol actually um, will 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 lead to shrinkage in a number of important areas of the brain, and make us lead to lower levels of functioning. It also inhibits our immunological system, so we become more vulnerable to illnesses and other diseases, which then compound the trauma with having to stru- uh, struggle with physical, you know, problems. Yeah. Um, at a, at a neurodynamic level. You've got uh, activation of our fear circuitry um, actually inhibits our other two executive networks, one of which is how we solve problems and think abstractly and all of that. And the other system it inhibits is a system that's involved with our ability to be self-aware and also be able to connect and have empathy and compassion for other people. So what happens when someone is, tra- is traumatized and it, it, um, it surpasses that Freud talked about surpassing a, 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 a stimulus barrier that we have. What he really meant by that, I think, is that it changes the way our brain processes information. Mm. So for people that are really traumatized, um, they have a difficult time having a solid relationship with themselves mm. and connecting with and benefiting from the relationship with other people. So they become, they go into exile from themselves and also separated, separated, from the group mind. Mm. And it's those two places. I mean, the, the best antidote to trauma is being able to connect with other people and hold them and go through that healing process. That's why community yeah. is important when it comes to healing from trauma. The problem is if you've been traumatized to a significant degree, yeah. you can't benefit from other people and you can't benefit from the community. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and also, so you've got that, you have difficulty in functional abilities, memory learning, Mm. uh, uh, abiding by social rules and all of that. So trauma is a gift that keeps on giving, that has this downward spiral. And you see people that, um, you know, have these negative trajectories in their lives because of the trauma. Mm -hmm. And also the thing is that trauma is cumulative, Mm. right? So the more you're traumatized, the more these things, it's kind of like concussions. They, they, they synergize each other and they make it more and more difficult to recover from it. Mm-hmm. And I guess to, to talk to the, you know, your audience and saying, well, if someone's had trauma, being able to reconnect with other people and community is a good antidote. Right. However, you can't assume that someone's going to be able to do that because of the brain changes that result as a function of the trauma. So they need some, you know, really intensive professional help to reorganize how their brains are processing so that they get back on track with benefiting from those things that are naturally health, you know, health provoking or, and, and uh, ensuring in their environment. And so reconnecting is the, the pathway of healing and integration, but, Often, if someone's been traumatized a lot, that is a, a natural barrier because it's the source of the pain. And so it's that, yes, yeah, sometimes it's the source, but also it's it's there are things within our brain that keep us for, from being able mm. to grow onto those, you know, salubrious things in our environment, those health inducing processes. Yeah. That what salubrious means? Yeah, salubrious means um, you know it's like salud probably from the Latin from the Latin mm. root. It just means um, you know healthy and uh, uh, you know inducing health. 
Awesome. I love, I love learning new words. So, so thank you. You know, I love the word. It's such yeah. a healthy word to know. <laughs> yes. That, no, that, that is really, a, that's a fun one too. So yeah, thank you. That's uh, um, wow. So the, the hope is, so what about like, let's say someone's not been like severely traumatized, just your, your average trauma, which I have, I don't even know how to define that, but um, they can function, they hold down a job, they're, you know, they're in community on some level. What would be a, a way that, how could they identify a good enough, safe enough relationship? How do you identify a safe enough relationship? Well, I think, I guess the things that come up for me is that um, it takes time mm. to be able to know Mm-hmm. Uh, whether someone is safe and trustworthy yeah, and I'd have to base that on their behavior that I can witness through my interactions with them. Mm-hmm. But I'd have in mind that people, there are many, many people who behave one way in social settings and another way in private relationships. I can't tell you how many uh, people I've worked with who describe their spouses that way, mm-hmm. you know, Public, there's a public John and there's a uh, at home John mm-hmm. and in public, everyone loves them. And they, you know, they're like the mayor of the town. And then at home, they're a holy terror. They're dysregulated. They're drinking, they're shaming, they're critical and all of that stuff. So even if you've identified a good person in the social context, then there's another level of, of needing to be careful um, because a lot of people's pain is associated deep inside of them with intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. Very good. They develop a good social act, but when they start feeling love and connection and dependency, there's a whole nother person can come out. So it's, it's hard. It's challenging. So you take, you got to go slow, maybe going slow rather than overly or too early attaching. Uh, but also I'm thinking, I want to share like it's worth an intelligent strategic effort to kind of find those places to connect and reconnect. Cause that's the, that is how we grow and heal. Um, but, and sometimes that would require a professional, a, a, a place that is, but you wanted sure. to say something to that. Well, I was just thinking that um, many people I know who have been traumatized, their thinking and their emotional world is, dis- is distorted to the point where they're not able to make those mm. choices. And so they choose based on, you know, on um, observations or on thoughts that really aren't very sensible. Hmm. Like, well, there's, you know, there are people that are sometimes referred to as borderline in their behavior. And, uh, you know, borderline pathology is probably a kind of post-traumatic stress related to early attachment difficulties. Mm Mm-hmm. And the, the desire to connect is so powerful in them that they tend to have incredibly immediate, intense attachments to mm. people, right? Yes. And based on the fantasy, uh, you know, of that they'll finally get what their parent wasn't able to give them, emotional regulation, a sense of safety, a sense of value. And the minute anything goes wrong, which always does in relationship, right? Yeah. The minute goes wrong they experience a sense of betrayal and attack. Mm-hmm. And I've had, I've had borderline clients that will do that, you know, through 10 or 20 relationships and still think that it has nothing to do with them, that it has to do with finding the right person. 
Mm. So there are forms, you know, there are, there are problems. And I think one form of, of PTSD, which I, you know, which I think is re, uh, manifest as what we call borderline is just such a, just such a phenomenon. It creates, uh, it creates a set of thoughts and feelings and behaviors that actually obviate uh, the ability to get what it is they're looking for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It gets in the way of them being able to heal. And it's a self-perpetuating process. So that 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 person would probably need some additional professional help before to build the bridge to community. Yeah, uh, folks in that category generally benefit from uh, sort of cognitive, behavioral-oriented, and mindfulness-oriented group treatments, mm-hmm. right? Um, as opposed to individual talk therapy. Okay, that's good. That's- well, you know, I'm I'm wondering, you know, one thing that I wanted to talk about was spirituality and even and I know you talk about like healthy spirituality and unhealthy or I think you call it pathological spirituality. Maybe you can share a little bit about what either one you could start with pathological or healthy spirituality. What does that look like? And my audience is Christian, but not all of them. You know, some of them would be agnostic or from other faiths. So you can talk in broad terms. And if you want, if you have any specific uh, examples in the Christian realm, you know, what healthy and unhealthy spirituality looks like. Well, you know, I, I re, you know, just as an example from my own life, when I was walking to church with all of my aunts, when I was nine years old, I would hear them, you know, I would go to church. I was I, at that age. I took it seriously. You know, I believe mm-hmm. I say, I believe I wasn't looking at anything as metaphor. I was trying to find some guidance and, you know, mm-hmm. from life and principles and all of those things. And you know, I took, I, I went to my classes, I went to Sunday school, I read the Bible, I did all of those things. And what really struck me was that I was learning all of these things that I think are the sort of the basic principles of, you know, the golden rule yeah. and connected to it from, from what I was told Jesus talked about. And then walking to school with my aunts who were gossiping and criticizing other people and, um, mm. but was so incredibly important to them that they went to church, hmm. right? And they used it almost as a, um, it was like they used their spirit, their religiosity in kind of an egotistical way, you know, to show who was more religious, mm-hmm. you know? which to me, there was such a, dis- it was almost like they were, it was like two separate worlds from what I was seeing, and, you know, what I was learning at church and what I was seeing from the people around me. Hmm. And so I think that's probably the, my first my first hint of, hmm. of healthy spirituality versus unhealthy spirituality, mm-hmm. religion or or beliefs or whatever, as part of your ego defense mechanisms, hmm. as opposed to using spirituality in a way that opens your heart and breaks down your ego and allows you to be more available to yourself and other people. Hmm. Right. That's what healthy spirituality l- moves you towards. Yeah, that's my, again, this is just me yeah. based on experience. Um, I suspect someone probably agrees with me somewhere, but this is just what, uh, you know, what I made of it. And then when I was in divinity school, I was surrounded by all of the, you know, many, many people who were going to be priests and ministers and rabbis um, going forward. And in taking classes with them in psychology classes and, you know, personality assessment classes, I looked around and listening to people talk, and one after another, I realized, holy mackerel, you know, these people are out of their minds. 
And they're, I mean, these people really haven't faced their own fears and their traumas. And what they're doing is they're, they're, build, they're using what we're learning in these religion classes almost as armor to build a, to go out and survive in the world. And then at some point I realized, holy mackerel, I'm in the class with them. <laughs> so probably doing the same thing they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point I realized, you know, I'm not going to go into the ministry. I'm not going, I'm not going to just hang up a shingle and, and hold myself up as someone who knows anything. I'm going to spend 10 years in therapy. I'm going to go to the hardest programs I can find in psychology and I'm going to make sure that I can really cut it and that my work with clients is as little about me as possible and as much as possible about them and being helpful to them. Right. Yes. That's, that's good. I like that self-awareness. That's I, I would bless everyone here to grow in their self-awareness of, Oh, where do I, where am I limited and how can I have more of that open posture that you're kind of talking about? Well, what drew you to um, Harvard divinity school? Well, I had been studying um, as an undergraduate. I studied uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and Sanskrit. Mm. And so I was incredibly interested in theology um, and, and religious studies and comparative religions. But And I decided that I wanted to be a, a psychologist, but I had never taken any psychology courses as an undergraduate. So during my master's program, which I stretched out, I did the master's in, in, uh, in uh, you know, theology, but I did simultaneously an undergraduate degree in psychology so that I could be prepared to, you know, to go into a doctoral program. And it was a really interesting thing because I, in the mornings I was at the divinity school hmm. classes in theology and church history and all these different things. And in the afternoon I was in the psych labs you know, running pigeons and rats and, you know, and taking classes. And, and so it was really, and, and mm. people from either world thought I was crazy for being, for having the other foot in the other world, mm. which I really love. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something to interdisciplinary study and knowledge and you can, you see things differently. And, sure. And that's, well, that, that's, thanks for sharing that, that story. Well, um, you know, the, some of the books, I think you have at least two books on uh, attachment-based teaching or learning. Uh-huh. Why'd you write those? That's interesting. That's cool. I, you know, like, cause attachment, that's a key thing of what guides us, drives us. And then right. in learning, cause my wife and I, we want to help people learn. We think learning in community is the best, best way to do it. Uh, there's pastors listening. That's hopefully that would be in their mind. Um, small group leaders. What's, mm-hmm. what are some threads or knowledge that you would would be good if people understood about attachment-based learning teaching well i think the um as i was studying what works and what doesn't work in psychotherapy i wrote a book called the neuroscience of psychotherapy and i wasn't um, because i had been trained in a number of different uh, uh, forms or conceptualizations of therapy I realized that they all work sometime for some people, but the way psychology, the the profession was divided up is that everyone, it was sort of just like different religious sects Mm -hmm. and everybody support, everybody believed Mm -hmm. their sect and would always be criticizing the other sects. But I, that there was something valuable uh, across a number of different train, you know, modalities that I was trained in. So I was thinking of, well, what, we all have a brain, regardless of what sect we're a member of. And maybe the, the neuroscience is a way to pull that together and understand, like, like what, the, what are the common factors across these different um, 
sort of forms of therapy. And what I really came up with was that, you know, the, the psychotherapy setting is a kind of a classroom, usually with just one or two clients or two students in it, mm-hmm. that there are certain ways that you can interact with someone that enhances their, the, the ability of their brain to learn. Hmm. So sociostat- I call them sociostatic mechanisms. In other words, if you and I are interacting, there are ways that I can treat you that make you more open and create a state of brain and mind that hmm. help you learn, right? Yes. Those are the basic Rogerian principles from hmm. therapy. I've had students that did dissertations about the biology of the, of the Rogerian approach. Like what kind of, what does that create in your brain huh. to use Roger's principles? Yes. Right? And so in doing that for psychotherapy, it just dawned on me one day. It's like, hell, this are, these are all the same things that teachers need to know. Mm. Right? Yes. And it's the same. It's just a bigger classroom. Right. Mm. And so what, what, you know, looking at the evolutionary history of, of culture and society and all of that from, for the vast majority of our history, you know, for the tens of thousands of years before we, we were in our current state of, of society or civilization, people, you didn't, there were no schools. People learned from people that loved them and who they loved, mm-hmm. right? Um, people, you learned because your survival depended on it. And also people taught you because their survival depended on you learning because someday you were going to have to do the things that they would no longer be able to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So wound up in the, it was bound in the social network, right? Not the individual brain, but the social brain as part of a of a of a group of social brains, the mm-hmm. community, right? Yeah. That or try use the word tribe because I think it just reflects more the anthropological uh, history of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the you know if if anybody knows what Roger's principles are, you know acceptance, you know positive regard, warmth compassion all of those basic things which i and rogers was the son of a it was it was the son of a minister yeah and so where do you think he got those things from did they sound any at all like jesus's teachings yes right? yes so again we take that mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't think science and religion are separate mm-hmm. for me they're just different ways of looking at the human process and if you know and they're going to be consilient in other words they're each going to reinforce each other mm-hmm. if you're track yes right and so i'm not surprised that jesus's teaching mm-hmm. is the is the core in many ways of psychotherapy and also you know and buddhism and education and all of yeah. that stuff so when, when i wrote my books on on education they weren't so much because i thought i had to teach i had anything to teach the teachers hmm. I, good teachers know they know they know right but the school systems Make them believe that they're loving their students isn't it enough. It's the curriculum that's important, that there's no time to form strong groups, that you shouldn't love your students. That's mm. not personal, right? Which to me is all anti-education, mm. right? So you, were targeting, you were targeting the administration to give some legitimacy to the teachers. Well, it, it was slightly, yes, but slightly different. I didn't target the administration because I didn't think the administration would care at all, right? I was targeting the teachers so that they felt confident in being the humans. If the administrators questioned them, they could say, here, read this and come back to me. 
Oh, that's good. You gave them the, the, the support that in it strengthened their confidence in what they probably the good ones. They, that's why they went into it. Yeah. Right. It was like giving David a slingshot. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what book, I think you have two on learning and education is social yeah. neuroscience and then the attachment based teaching, which one, does it matter which one, like people who are interested in that sort of concept to start with? Well, the attachment-based teaching book um, is, is the social neuroscience of education with a lot of the scientific, like walking through the scientific evidence taken out, right? Okay. It, that, that know it, that don't need the scientific evidence, you know, that just want to get the principles in the way. So it's, it's, in a sense, it's watered down on the basis of the science, but it's not at all watered down as far as the message is concerned. Got it. Okay. So maybe that would be a good place unless they are the kind of person who wants to know all the science. Yeah. If you're, if you're a science geek like me, you might like the bigger one. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's, that's wonderful. Oh, I, well, I'm, I'm, we're kind of wrapping up and really appreciate your time and just, you know, kind of as we're talking, you know, my audience is Christian and I know that's your origins, but I don't know where you landed. So I have two questions. Where are you, where's your faith now? What is it? And then wherever it is, what would be your exhortation and blessing to the Christians listening? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, going back to that story of what I learned about Jesus as a child and the confusion that was created by how Mm. the difference between Jesus, or I should say the difference between Christ and Christianity. Mm -hmm. I'm all for Christ. I'm not for Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And so I think I'm probably right there uh-huh. with your audience. And I think, you know, for me having, you know, I went to Buddhism because I needed something that wasn't tainted with all the cultural baggage because I, I didn't live in a Buddhist country. Right. But when I the core of Buddhism, I found the core of Christianity. Hmm. There were, or if, I, if, I, if this was a group of philosophers and theologians, there's all sorts of arguments we could get into as far as the differences between these two, you know, whatever religions. But all I can say is when I get to the bottom of Christianity and the bottom to Buddhism, as I experience it, I end up at the same place inside of myself. Hmm. So there are these different roads to the same place. And it really is just the golden rule. That's it. Beyond that, it all seems like filigree that creates trouble. (laughs) You just use another word, filigree. Yeah. Oh, filigree just means, you know, in, 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 uh, sort of, can I say, like just, you know, when you draw a picture and then you draw all kinds of curlicues and flowers and do all that stuff to it, you make it really fancy, but the core of it is is the same, yeah, right? Okay. Got, it, it, got it. The metals of it, yeah. Got and it. I think one of my clients said it, you know, he's been struggling with these issues of, uh, you know, of things and he's very... Um, he, he just came to it. I think, I think I, he's Jewish actually, but again, has come to the same place. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, he said the core of the core of religion seems to be, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone in your audience is don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't offend me because it's true and that's okay. I'm interviewing you. I want what you have to say, you know, and so yeah. that, no, that's good. That's true. Like, yeah, that's, that's like a, um, uh, a, a bumper sticker. Actually, my neighbor neighbor has that bumper sticker, which is sort of like the golden rule in like in a, yeah. a catchy, you know, get your attention way. Yeah. And so, yeah. 
But I think it's really, it really means the same thing. You know, and have, I remember, I don't know however many years ago it was, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, when I was trying to, you know, when I was in this active process of, you know, oh, I'm on the wrong, I'm on the wrong path in life. Mm. I have, there's a number of things I need to change because this, what I'm doing is not good, right? Mm. And one of the things that I came up with that, that sort of just came up from inside of me, it, wasn't, it didn't even feel like a feeling as, or a thought as much as it came up like a feeling. It's like whenever I have the opportunity, whenever it occurs to me to do something nice for someone, mm. do it, right? Don't let all the, despite all the considerations that are going to come up, like, you know, oh, it's going to be expensive. I don't get to do something else, blah, 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 blah. They might, it might be embarrassing. They might think I'm after something, you know, that was one of the things. So just do it. And I started practicing that mm. and it worked pretty well. I mean, some people think I'm mean, like, some people are suspicious. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody needs money and I give them to it, it's like, well, what do you want? Mm. The, it's like, I really don't want anything, but I know you don't believe me. But, you know, give it time and you'll see. <laughs> There's no bill coming. I like that. There, there is some, some sense, some intuition, some feeling to do something good. Yeah. You act on it. Yeah. And that is a better way to live than, yeah. than not. And, and another thing, too, that I remember from that same period, it's like I wasn't sure what the right thing to do was in, my, in, in many areas of my life. But I could see clearly what the wrong thing to do was. So if I can identify a wrong thing I'm about to do, don't do it. Right. Yeah. That I have to deal with the emotions of not doing it or dealing with the consequences of that or whatever. But if something, if something is wrong, mm. you know, don't do it and then be patient and be patient and aware so that if the right thing occurs to you, you've got the time to do it because you're not distracted by doing the wrong thing. Hmm. Right. And you're not spending all that time repairing the things that are wrong that you do. Yes. Yes. It takes a it, it, uh, one match can burn down a whole house, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, a whole city. Yes. A whole city. Well, Lou, thank you. I really appreciate uh, your time. Where, if people are interested in learning more who you are, where, where, where should they look? Well, of course, you can find my books on Amazon. I've got uh, lectures on YouTube, and also I have a website uh, called Luke. Ha- uh, what is it, DrLukeCasalino.com? I think that's my website. I don't visit very often because I know myself, but yeah. I think, and it's uh, you'll see. I've um, I've got a bunch of pieces from different books up there. I have two wonderful um, wonderful women that I work with, and they write things as well. And um, we have an Instagram account, although I don't know how to do it. I'm not on Instagram myself, so I don't know how to get to it. But um, if any of you are tech savvy, you could probably you know, get to the back. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you and thank you so much for your time. And uh, everyone, I encourage you to kind of check those things out. If uh, what Lou has shared is, is drawn your interest and be curious and warm and uh, move towards uh, doing the, the next good thing. All right. All right, let me. Thanks, John. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Lou Cozzolino. Please let me know what you think and how this will enhance and strengthen your life. So how can we be more in tune with ourselves so we can be in tune with God's presence and love one another? Take care. God bless. Be the light of the world that you are.